Hey there, quick heads up before we kick off today's episode. We're a small team effort so far, just the two of us and our editor making all of this happen. And now we're looking to take this show to the next level and could use your support to make it possible. We want to make sure that these conversations stay uninterrupted. So instead of selling ads, we've set up a Patreon community where you can get some cool extras like exclusive content, behind the scenes access, and a chance to have your questions answered by some of our guests. Your support matters a lot. So please check out the Patreon link in the show notes for this episode or go to theother22hours.com and click on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening, and here comes the episode. This is the Other 22 Hours Podcast. Where our goal is to provide musicians and other creatives with tools to create sustainability so you can sustain your creativity. Hi, and welcome to the Other 22 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Schaefer-Hayes. And I'm your host, Michaela Ann. And since this show is in its infancy, I assume you're a new listener. So thank you for checking us out. We like to think of this podcast as the anti-album cycle show. So it's not like your typical show where guests come on and talk about their latest album or their tour. We called it the other 22 hours because we wanted to focus on the hours that we as musicians are not on stage and explore different tools and routines that our guests use to keep balance and inspiration in their lives during the less than shiny times. Aaron and I have 25 years of touring experience between the two of us. I've spent the better part of the last decade putting out records, both on my own as well as with labels, touring the world, and building an independent career. I started making records in high school with friends, spent years touring with a lot of different bands, and now I produce records and write music for TV and commercials. Essentially, we are lifers. We've learned there's no one right way to build a career around your passions. And in an industry where so much can feel out of our control and up to luck, being in the right place at the right time, who you know, we wanted to focus on what is within our control. So we decided to invite our friends on to have conversations about all the other times that are outside of the public eye and ask them the question, what do you do to create sustainability in your life so you can sustain your creativity? Our guest on today's show is BJ Barham from American Aquarium. He's a songwriter from Raleigh, North Carolina, that has independently put out 16 records over the last 16 years. Yeah, and we had a really in-depth conversation with him today. His music and his conversation touches on a lot of really vulnerable, heavy, personal stuff, ranging from loss to miscarriage to political divides and families and in our country. We spent a long time this morning touching on brutal self-honesty, shifting priorities, and really just identifying and knowing what works for you, both outwardly in your career and you as a person inwardly. BJ is someone who is not afraid to go anywhere. So without any hesitation, enjoy our conversation with BJ Barham. So Joe's probably one of my best friends in this business, and we kind of call each other when we have these crazy ideas. We bounce stuff off of each other, mm-hmm. and... During the pandemic, he went super hard on the live streams, like Mm -hmm. ridiculous cameras, like amazing microphones. And I went super hard on the merchandise side of things. Mm -hmm. And so like we both built these parts of our business up. And then when it came time for me to play catch up with the live stream and him to play catch up with the merch, we were both like, okay, what worked and what didn't work? And yeah. so like, he sent me a giant list of, for less than $1,000, this is the gear you need, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And so like, there's a very visible notice in how good a quality me and Hayes Carl stuff started getting. 
because Joe just sent us because all that. <laughs> and I sent Hayes and Joe all of the merch stuff. And uh, yeah, the pandemic taught us where everybody's holes were in your business plan. And so it was fun to kind of have like a little group that was trying to find yeah. ways to patch those holes. I opened quite a few shows for Joe over the years, and he just sent me a link of like this to do self-service merch. Yeah, I taught him everything he knows about it. <laughs> he's passing it on to me, and he's like, Michaela, you got to get Good. this. Like, Buy he... you a thermal printer, download ShipStation. Okay, that's the next that's step. Because like, we're 100% in-house, the American Aquarium. Mm -hmm. I refused, early on, I refused to give anybody 20% of anything for just packing up envelopes, which yep. seemed really mm -hmm. smart at the time until it came to a point where we were selling a lot of records like pre-orders mm -hmm. and then like for lamentations we pre-sold twelve thousand copies of lamentations wow. so me wow. and my wife sat around for like five straight days and packed up twelve thousand vinyl mailers and oh when you God. do that you're like man now i see why people pay other people 20 percent. and then you do that math you're like i would never pay anybody that much money to yeah. do this <laughs> so now every time we put a record out me and my wife, like, we've got a science down now. So it's, it takes us about three days to get 10,000 records out the door. Wow. And wow. It's, uh, That's impressive. But it's three days of, like, really intense hard work. And my daughter is, is over there coloring on the boxes. So, like, some people get, like, really elaborate drawings on their boxes. Yeah. One of a kind <laughs> yeah, design. Yeah. But it's little things like that taught us, you know, you look at the amount of work you have to put in. And you have to ask your question, is this amount of money worth that amount of work? And if the answer is yes, keep doing it yourself. If it's not, find somebody else to do it. Right. How much is your time worth? How much do you value your hours? Can you use those hours for something exactly. else that's more exactly. valuable? Also, I think there's this idea, especially for people early on, it's a sign of making it or doing well. The more people you have to do shit for you that you don't have to do it yourself. That's always a goal that's talked about of like, I don't want to have to do anything else besides create my music. And I think people like you and and Joe and, I don't know, Ron Pope is another one mm -hmm. that's really like, no, there's a huge power, especially in today's music world, of doing as much as you can in-house. Aside from the fact that you keep more money, I think it really nurtures relationship with fans. And at the end of the day, I think that's a truth that is hard to realize that sustaining a lifelong career is really about your relationship with your fans and not with the industry, not with the agents and the gatekeepers, but it's really about the one-on-one -on -one connection with the people who buy your music 100%. and listen to your music. I've been running my merch since day one and every single merch item that goes out the door, I have a stack of index cards on my desk and I just write, Thank you for listening, BJ, and sign it. And I put it in every single order. And that was really easy to do when there's 10 orders coming in a month. And it was like this personal touch that people really appreciated because it's the same reason we go out of our way to pay more money for a mom and pop place than going to Target and buying the same thing that's less quality but cheaper. It's because there's that personal touch. There's a reason I buy custom jeans and pay way too much money for them. It's because if anything goes wrong with them, I can take them to Victor at Raleigh Denim and he stitches them up for me right there and says, thank you for your patronage. We had it all over the country in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Mm -hmm. Everybody had their role to play in town. You were the cobbler. You were the hat maker. You were the tailor. You were the guy that did produce. And we got away from that. And I wanted to go back to letting each and every single person know that when you bought something from me, whether it was a CD or a shirt or a combination of the two, that there was a real human being on the other side of that that was not only thankful for 
you supporting the art that I create, but also a person doing that work and making sure that it got to you in a timely manner, making sure it was packaged properly, making sure that not only do I care about writing good songs that help you get through the day, I also care about making sure that you know how much I value going out above and beyond just coming to a show or buying a record. And I kept doing it, you know, because we watched 10 people a month turn into 100, then it turned into 1,000, then it turned into, it's its own separate business now. Like literally the merchandising side is its own LLC in our company. And I still, to this day, write handwritten notes in every single order. Because then you're not just a company selling somebody something. You're a friend that bought something from a friend. Like, I mm-hmm. see it. It shows me on my little ship station. It's like, this is a 19-time repeat customer. This is a 25-time repeat customer. We have a 97% repeat customer rate on our online store. That's amazing. That's insane. That's insane yeah. for any industry. And it goes back to, does somebody really need 27 American Aquarium t-shirts? No, you don't. You don't. <laughs> but... I don't own 27 t-shirts, period, <laughs> of any kind. Yeah, it's, but it's one of those things where those people look at it. They don't look at it like owning a t-shirt. They look at it like, how can I help my favorite artist this month or this quarter? Yeah. And it's usually by buying a shirt or buying a, oh, they've got a new color variant of that vinyl that I already own four color variants. A fantastic. I'll happily buy the fifth pressing of this. Mm-hmm. And it's about fostering that. And like we've been really lucky. And we're, and we're living proof that... As long as you take care of your fan base, they take care of you. And I understand there's, I've got plenty of artist friends who are like, if I spent that much time worrying about sending merch out and worrying about doing this, then I wouldn't have time to be an artist. I've put out 16 <laughs> records in 16 years. I promise you there's time in the day to write your records, record your records, play 300 shows a year and still take care of your fan base. Like, it's how much work you're willing to put into it. That's the kicker for me is people are like, I can't. And it's mm-hmm. like, you don't want to. You're not willing to. Mm-hmm. It's funny because the people that I tend to associate with in this business are the people that are doing it independently. You don't need a million fans. You need about a thousand fans that really give a fuck. If you have a thousand yeah. people that will buy every record you ever put out, your goal. Mm-hmm. We have this misconstruction when we get into the music business that if we're not on CMT or we're not on the radio or we didn't have a top 10 hit, then we haven't made it. My question is, did you pay your bills this month? If you did, you're right. a professional musician. You might not be the yep. most successful professional musician, but at the end of the day, if you don't have to work another job and your songs, your creation, your production, your art paid the bills this month, kept the lights on, kept food in your tummy... You're a pro in my book. Absolutely. To foster a strong, committed fan base of any size, if you have a thousand committed fans that spend a hundred dollars on you a year, you have a six figure business. You're making six figures. That's it. I mean, if you break it down like that, that's a small barrier to cross. You know, you don't need to be Selena Gomez or Justin Bieber or anything like that. Almost every artist I know has a thousand Instagram followers. Instead of growing your Instagram following to 10,000, focus on that thousand you got. How can I make sure that they're invested? How do I keep them engaged? How do I engage with them enough to make them want to believe every record that comes out is worth buying? You're creating this family, this community of people Mm -hmm. that if we don't have anything in common, we have one thing in common. We all love songs. And in this Mm -hmm. case, we all love the songs that I write. And some artists aren't willing to do it, but like it shows I'm at the merch table every night. And again, it started out of necessity. When you only have 10 people in the room, you've got to sell a CD to all 10 of those people to try to get to the next place. 
But then it turns into a hundred people and then it turns into a thousand people. And I still stand there. Some nights I'm there two, three hours signing and taking Mm -hmm. pictures, but it goes such a long way because you're fostering these friendships. Like I recognize the people that are repeat customers. I know their name. I know their family. I ask Mm -hmm. them how they're doing and they're not fans at that point. They're just friends that happen to support the art that I make. And my goal is to have a thousand of those, 10,000 of those. 50,000 friends that support my art, that's the goal. And I get it. Some people can't do that. Some people are so socially introverted that going out to a merch table in front of 50 people scares the shit out of them. But for me, I came at it straight from, I remember the days of sleeping on floors and having to create those friendships immediately and be like, listen, can we stay on your floor? Like, can you buy a CD? Can you cook us breakfast (laughs) tomorrow morning? You know, that, and there's some people that like never came from that school of roughing it. Or they did and couldn't wait to get out of it. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Like as you climb the ladder, as someone who literally started at the very bottom of the ladder and took every rung as they've come, I haven't had like a fast pass anywhere. I've got some friends who first record signed to a major label on tour with a big band. You're in a bus first tour. I don't know how people do that because that fall is so monstrous. When you have to go to a bus, when you go from like bus, major label, I'm in the machine, I've got a tour support budget, I've got a band paid for, to, oh shit, this E350, like, it's going to break down soon. How many gallons are in this gas tank? This pump won't stop. Exactly. So it's fun because like we're very fortunate as a band. We're at a point where like we've been in a bus since 2017 and a lot of my band has never been in the van. And so I have to be like the old sage who tells them like, guys... You don't remember what tour books are. You don't remember what MapQuest is. Like, trust you. Th- you think a tour bus bed's uncomfortable? Try to find a flat spot of a van seat. Mm-hmm. But it's I appreciate everything that we have now because of the dues that were paid, and not just dues that were paid for six months or a year. I'd say the first we started '06, we moved a bus. Eleven years we were in a van and a trailer, and three of those years we played over three hundred shows in one year. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a lot. I'm thirty eight. This is my 17th year in the business. I've played over 3,600 shows in 17 years. And mm-hmm. I'd say maybe a couple hundred of them were like now, like comfortable. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets paid. Exactly. There's a tour manager. Like I was the same way with tour management. Like I've only had a tour manager for two years. The other 15, I was the tour manager. I was the guy who booked the shows. I was the manager. I did mm-hmm. everything. For me, making it was like, holy shit, we have a booking agent now. Like, I don't have to send out like thousands of booking emails a year. Oh my gosh. There's a yeah. guy that does and it. And follow ups. Oh, and for me, I was sending out like MySpace messages to venues and be like, hey, emo hardcore venue, would you like to book an alt country show? Yeah. You know, that, like yeah. trying to talk people into booking us. And so like, what I had to do was like I created websites. I was Bradley at Small Time Booking. I was Bradley at Small Time Publicity. And I was Bradley at Small Time Management. And so these clubs would get emails from me. Like if I was booking a show, I was Bradley at Small Time Booking. And they could go to the mm-hmm. website. And it was like a real website. And they never clicked roster because if they had it, it was only one band on the roster. And then mm-hmm. I would send messages to every single weekly in town. And I was Bradley at Small Time Publicity. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm representing this band. They're on, like, and I'd have these like press releases that I would send them. And it was just all shit I made in like Word documents. Yep. And, oh, yeah. Oh, we did this. We did like a I, whole I did booking the same agency. Because I was, <laughs> when we were living in New York, you know, I was 
a side man. I was playing with a bunch of artists and nobody had an agent and nobody was getting responses to their emails. Yeah. So I started a booking agency called Big Venture Artists. And the only real name on the whole website, I put my name as the president. <laughs> yeah. Full yes. on Aaron Schaefer Hayes president. But I signed Michaela. I signed, you know, there was like signed. There was like eight <laughs> artists and everybody had their own booking agent. Michaela's agent was Matt Shattuck. Completely made up name, but it was Matt at BigVentureArtist.com. And it all got sent and to one spot. Like, Fantastic. Yeah. All of a sudden people started responding. It's, it's, it's legitimacy. Like, they see a booking agent yeah, yeah. and they immediately say someone is willing to vouch for them right and mm-hmm. and, and that's all it took because i would get to clubs because i go by bj but bradley's what the b stands for and it was well over a decade before any promoter put the two together so now <laughs> when we go back to these clubs you know like steve at off broadway is just like i've been booking you for 15 years and i never knew that the guy singing the songs was the guy. I was like, how do you think I knew all the deal points at settlement? Like no lead singer is that tuned in to what the Ever. deal points are. <laughs> I was like, cause, yeah. cause up, like again, up until two years ago, not only was I doing a lot of the booking, I was doing the settlement at shows. I was the first mm-hmm. face the crew saw. So I was shaking hands, yep. loading in merch, setting up merch. So it blew people's mind when showtime comes and I step out from behind the merch table you know, comb my hair and walk on stage and play the songs. They were like, what is this? That was the singer the whole time? Yep. Like, we just thought he was a yeah, really th- outgoing merch guy. I think people, well, one, so like the whole point of this podcast for us is to kind of like dispel the farce that a lot of us still, so many people can be like, wow, why is it so hard for me only? And why does it seem like it's so much easier for everybody else? But at the same time, I think even fans would be interested to hear some of the stuff because I'm still shocked at some people really not knowing what we all go through to play music. Even recently, I was talking to someone that something about rejection came up and they were shocked to know that I face rejection. I was like, are you kidding yeah. me? I'm a musician. I face rejection on a daily basis. <laughs> people telling me no, people ignoring me, not getting tours, not getting festivals. Like there is no way to do this and not be rejected or excluded constantly. It doesn't help with social media either. Social media is this no. gasoline on the fire. And don't get me wrong, for anybody listening out there that's just starting, social media is a greatest hits. Nobody posts the rejection letters. They only post the good stuff. So you're constantly inundated on a daily basis with tour announcements and new records and just got signed and can't believe we had this opportunity. Nobody's posting, holy mm-hmm. shit, like we put out another record and nobody gave a shit about it. Yeah. Yep, we showed up at another town and nobody told anybody that we were coming. But we post a picture that was like angled in a way that it looked like there were people. Yeah, there. it's like for every sold out hometown <laughs> show we got, there's a Des Moines show on Tuesday that didn't do nearly as good as the hometown show. But you better yeah. believe that I'm promoting the whole fucking tour with that hometown show picture. Yeah. But it's really hard for me because like a lot of young kids ask, so like, where was your break? And I was like, we never got the break. A lot of young bands, they get to put on tours. They get to support bigger tours. And that's kind of how... A lot of bands go about building their fan bases. They'll go in with an established artist. They'll be the opener and they get the opportunity to play in front of a thousand kids every night. We never got that. We've done one support to our entire career. And that was in 2015. We supported Justin Towns Earl for a tour for a month. But other than that, like I waited for like two or three years when we first started because I thought like, oh, we put a record out. We're touring. Somebody will take us on the road. And then nobody took us on the road. So we had to make a very quick decision like, do we wait for somebody else to give us the opportunity 
or do we just go and play every menu venue from the East Coast to the West Coast? And mm-hmm. the hard the hard decision is that going and playing in front of five people oh, every yeah. night and not getting paid, malnourished, having zero places to sleep, not being able to afford a hotel room. If one thing breaks on the van, the tour's screwed. Like nobody has money, maxing out credit cards. That's the hard road. But it was the only choice we had as a band. And so I don't know how I did it, but I talked five other guys into believing in it enough. I think I had one band for almost eight years. And the whole time they were in the band, we were just like struggling. And every day we'd wake up and say, okay, we got an eight hour drive to the next town. We'd look in the kitty, you know, the little safe we keep up front and we'd be like, okay, we got 60 bucks. Everybody gets five bucks for lunch. We should have enough gas. Hopefully there's people there tonight. Hopefully there's merch. Hopefully the club decides to pay us. And we did that for a good decade before, you know, the hard part's turning five people into 10 people, 10 people into 20 people, 20 people into 40. It's easy to turn 100 fans into 200, 200 into 400, 400 into 800. Once you get to that point, it's the career gets a lot easier. But those building block years, those foundational years, I'd say 90% of the bands that start off, it's like, go back to law school, man. Like law school is way easier than sleeping on floors for a decade. Because yeah. mm-hmm. if you can't deal with one rejection letter, Try dealing with it 300 nights a year. Yeah, exactly. And still standing on on stage and playing a good show for the two people that are there. Because you need those two. You have to have those two people because next time you need them to turn into four. And you might want to cry, but you have to fucking put a smile on your face and play a good show. Or develop substance abuse problems. (laughs) That that was my coping. My coping mechanism was like, okay, cool. If nobody here gives a shit, I'm getting fucked up and talking shit to everyone yep. and uh, turns out that's not a good healthy way <laughs> to deal with issues yeah that yeah. doesn't equate to gasoline in the <laughs> tank no no and also just like being lucky to have the right people around you from the start i've been really lucky aaron and i've been together for 15 years we went to music school together and we started out He was touring long before, like as a teenager. But then when I started touring, my boyfriend was helping me and he was with me. And we had friends that came. And I think about this because the first tour I booked, I self-booked down the East Coast. We lived in New York City. We had no money. I was booking bars and we did a four piece. And our friend Phil, who now is in the band Midland. Oh, nice. And he's so deserving. He has like the cushiest, greatest, you know, he doesn't carry his gear he gets to golf all the time he flies he's on a bus but that tour we did two weeks of just the shittiest stuff and at the end of two weeks i said i have a hundred bucks for you and philip didn't make me feel bad he wasn't like this sucks he looked at me and granted he was 10 years older than me he knew what he was getting into and he looked at me and he said you should be really proud of yourself and i still remember that because i was like okay there's multiple attitudes that we can have We can feel like shit. And believe me, I spend time feeling like shit about myself in any given moment. Or we can be like, damn, we should be really proud of ourselves for what Mm -hmm. we're doing and what we're building through this and surviving. Exactly. I think uh, you made a great point there. It's I think being an artist on any level, there is at least a minute of your day where you're like, I'm a failure. Imposter syndrome starts creeping its head in and be like, you see somebody else's post And the human in you is, why do they get that? Their songs aren't as good as mine. Mm -hmm. Their band's not Mm -hmm. as good as mine. They didn't put in the work that I have. They haven't been around as long as I have. And then you have to remind yourself that we're all on these different journeys and that all of us are going to start the race at one spot and finish it at another spot. 
And then you have to have that moment where you're like, shit. And every day I have this moment at least once a day where it's, I haven't had to work a straight job in 17 years. I've Mm -hmm. been able to make shit up on my couch, sing it into a microphone (laughs) and people pay me to do that and then do it live just every night. And that brings me back to center. I think a certain part of artist is learning how to walk around on that dark side of our brain, the negative side. That's where I think a lot of really great ideas come from and a lot of great solutions to ideas come from is being able to kind of lower yourself into that fucking really dark space that most people are afraid to even go to, i.e. every Southern white male that's afraid to cry in public. Mm -hmm. And being able to lower yourself down in there long enough, not to let it overtake you, but to like mine it for what it is, which is inspiration. Some of the best songs I've ever written were spending just an extra minute hanging in that abyss of negativity and then crawling back out where the light is and be like, okay, guys, I saw some shit down there. Let's put it into a song. (laughs) And I think that's what being an artist is. is, And and the longer you do it, the better you get at it, the more comfortable you feel lowering yourself into it, belay away, just falling into that stuff and trusting it, Mm -hmm. knowing that it's not going to overwhelm you and overtake you, but knowing that that's where the good stuff lives. And I I tell people, they're like, man, I, I get really down about being a musician. I get really down. Like this tour didn't make any money or this tour was not as good as our last tour. And I have to remind them that, you know, that's part of our gig. The uncertainty is what sucks about our gig. And the uncertainty is, I think, what also keeps us in our gig. Because just for every Mm -hmm. tour we leave on, like, it could fail. But it could do really well. Like, we all could profit. We could meet that right person that our team is missing that immediately changes our trajectory. I think every band that has gotten on the other side of the hump will tell you that there's always that turning point of, I want to quit, I should quit. And right before you quit, this door opens to like a shortcut. You're like, holy shit, Like that's been there the whole time. And then you take it and you're like, well, never mind, we're not going to quit anymore because now our cell phone bills are paid or we all have compare rent on time or whatever. Whatever little checkbox you need to check. And it's just about keeping your head down and keeping your feet moving, knowing that it can't be bad forever. Like I, I'm exactly. a true believer that if you are willing to get up every day and dedicate yourself to anything, it doesn't have to be music. This is a life lesson. If you're willing to dedicate anything, your time, your energy to something you're passionate about, something you love, not only will you get better at it every day, eventually the table has to turn like a cabinet maker. When you start making cabinets, nobody's going to show you their first fucking set of cabinets. You can buy my first set of cabinets for 99 cent on iTunes. But nobody's going to show you their first cabinets. But if you keep doing it every day, you keep up and you try to hone that craft and make cabinets, eventually there's going to be one person that buys your cabinets. And that's going to be your turning point. Holy shit, I just sold a set of cabinets. And then somebody's going to see their cabinets be like, where'd you get the cabinets? Like this guy. And then you're already two years better than you were when you built their cabinets. So you floor somebody else. You charge more for your cabinets. Then you're in demand cabinet maker. And then you look up and fucking 17 years later, you're making cabinets, you're making a living. Other people are working for you making cabinets. You have to remind yourself that every day there's that chance to get better at it. Even if you don't make any more money today, even if you don't get a big tour, even if nobody else follows you on Instagram, you've got a chance to dedicate an hour, two hours, five hours to your craft and be better tonight when you put your head on that pillow than you were this morning when you woke up. And that's massive. 
I think it's exactly that. A, it's understanding that every cabinet maker is putting their best cabinet on Instagram and not getting discouraged that when your cabinet is a trapezoid versus a square, that's not a failure. That's a learning experience. And to not get discouraged that your cabinet doesn't look like the cabinet that's on Instagram that you can buy at the showroom downtown. Exactly. You know, it's to view those failures as gifts and learning experiences that then the next cabinet you're going to make is going to be better. You find digging in and doing that work in the failures is when you find that secret door, that shortcut that you're talking about, because like it sucks to fail over and over and over again. So you're not going to be so attuned to these shortcuts if you're constantly making great cabinets from the start. You don't know what the work is. You don't know what the actual heavy lifting is. When somebody tells me what their favorite song is, like songwriters of mine, I wish I could go back and show them the work notes of how that song started, like how shitty of a line something was or how cliche something was. You're molding this thing. And I, I wish I could show people. It's like every song doesn't start off as like the perfect song that you get to hear on the record. It starts off as a line, as a melody, as a guitar progression. You slowly build it, and then you look at it, and you're like, fuck, that's not square. That needs to be square. Like, nobody's going to buy a cabinet if it's not square. And you go back, and you make sure, and until finally you get either a beautiful set of cabinets or a set of cabinets that fades into obscurity over a decade. But I feel like a lot of kids these days get discouraged because it doesn't happen as fast as VH1 behind the music tells us it happens. Yeah. And we still see it. We still see teenage kids get plucked out of the internet. And the next day, they're the most famous songwriter in the country singing about their feelings. And I'm not saying they don't deserve that because they do deserve that. Like at some point, somebody saw value in what they were doing. And that's massive. But for most of us, you get hit with that truth very quickly once you start this business. Not everybody was meant to ride the roller coaster to the top in one year. I always have to remind the band that. I always have to remind everybody that. It's like... Was this year better than last year? Yes. Let's try to make next year better than this year, and we're still trending in the right direction. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's trying to get to the top. I'm trying to get there as slow as humanly fucking possible. Because once you get to the top, <laughs> there's only one direction to go. And then yeah. you start playing chili cook-offs for the rest of your fucking life. And you have to play crawfish boils in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And you know that's... Mm-hmm. I'm trying to just stay on this ride as long as I can. So like if my ride looks like this instead of this, I've learned to find so much joy in this. And for people who aren't watching this video, I'm just I'm showing a very small small growth <laughs> instead of exponential growth. I think it's important to know that this small incline that there's divots throughout. For sure. It, that this year might be better than last year, but that doesn't mean that the entire year is just steadily uphill. There's so much up and down behind the scenes. You know, the pandemic hit and we would hear from people being like, you know, as much as this sucks, I'm actually like really grateful for the break and the calm and nobody else is doing anything. So I'm not trying to keep up. I don't have FOMO. And then it came back and everybody's back in it. And I feel like now the hushed conversations that we're having with friends is like on their Instagram, they're having their biggest year yet and they're on TV and they're selling out shows and it's huge. And then we talk to them and they're like, but I'm not making any money and I'm so fucking tired and I have no personal life. And I'm like, there's this big disconnect between what everyone's showing and what's really going on. And so what we're curious about as musicians who are in this for life and also now have a child We're like, how do we not only help ourselves and find a way to continue this throughout, but we're so interested in how to have healthy, balanced lives and be successful on our terms of what we consider success 
and how to help others in this. So like how to share honestly, what are the tools that we've sought out and built? So like we just met all this summer at the park, Musicians right? Musicians yeah, Corner. yeah, it's wit, wit right. Yep. Yeah. So then I've been following you on Instagram and social media since then. And I've been just really intrigued by the stuff you talk about. And then this last week of doing a deep dive, like researching you, basically, you are like a preacher. Like you, <laughs> and I right away was like, oh, my God, you and Aaron have so many things like sobriety and running and all these things you guys talk about. But how long did it take you to kind of develop that stuff? Were you just kind of innately this type of person? Obviously not completely because you do share that you've had substance abuse issues. And like, what does it look like on a daily basis to keep in your integrity and in these mindsets? And what does like a bad day look like? And what do you do to help shift that to stay in your centered place? I think a lot of what I have is innate. I was always extremely outgoing. I was always extremely extroverted. In my older age, I've become introverted. My wife is very much an introvert, but she was a she ran a bar, so she had to have this forced extrovert that she could turn on, and then she would just go back into her hole and enjoy herself, and then she would come back out and have to be. So she has taught me very much to enjoy flipping that switch and wearing Crocs and sweatshirts and not shaving and the state <laughs> of hermit life that you see me now. But... I went to school for history and political science with a focus in law. I'm the son of a Southern Baptist deacon. I've always had conviction. I've always known what I thought was right and wrong. And as I've gone through life, I've learned where I was wrong and where I was right. And my convictions now at 38 are pretty solid. I know what I believe in. I know what I stand for. I know what I'm not going to tolerate in my life. I know who to cut out, who to let in. And I think that's important. I think part of being a young kid is wanting everyone to like you. I think part of being mm -hmm. a new person in this business is wanting everyone to like you. And are you willing to give up this one little thing for one more person to like you? And some people say yes. And then one more person is going to come along and they just want that one little thing about you to change. And you say yes. And then you look up 10 years later and you've completely sacrificed everything you started with. I knew that was not going to be me. I knew I was not going to sacrifice anything to get somebody's approval or have someone take something from me for their approval. That's why we never signed a record deal. That's why we never signed anything. Mm -hmm. So then I get to 2014. So at that point, I'm eight years into my career. I realize that I have a crippling substance abuse problem. I have ruined every relationship up until that point. So I got sober. August 31st of 14, I got sober. It was not enough because the band that I had at the time had seen too much of not sober me. I had ruined relationships <laughs> to the point where... No amount of apology, no amount of trying to get better, no amount of turning a page was going to erase the things I said when I was drunk or the things I did when I was drunk or how little and small and insignificant I made people feel when I got drunk and started running my mouth. And so a big turning point for me was 2017 when I had an entire band quit, my band of eight years. The guys I had convinced to travel the world with me and not get paid for it, we finally are creeping up to this threshold of actually making real livings, playing music. And not even that was worth sticking around with me as a person. That was when I knew I had to change a lot of things. When offering someone security, financial security, and it's still not enough to make them stick around and play music with me, that's when you have to take a long, hard look and say, man, I've got a lot of, of internal housekeeping. So luckily my wife was a saint. My wife forever, I'll always argue that she saw something in me that I never saw in myself. And she always, every day, tried to pull that guy out. 
And I stubbornly resisted for a long time. Me and my wife have been together since 2011. So I pushed back a lot. But in 2017, that's where I realized that just being sober was not enough. I needed to change who I was as a person. And so luckily through her and a very small group of friends, I realized what a lot of my problems were. I was a bad boss. I was a bad friend. I was a bad partner. I was a bad husband. I was a bad everything. And so uh, I went through and I, I found out what I was doing wrong. And I tried to put more focus on how people felt. This action, yes, it might make me happy for the minute or two minutes or an hour or a day. How is it going to make anybody else that I care about feel? And if it started hurting them, I completely eradicated it from my life. And so now there's a reason I have had the same band for five years and they're happy. We still hang out like we love each other. And it's because I don't mm -hmm. treat them like employees. I treat them like human beings. I pay them a, a living wage. I treat them with respect. So that was a hard part for me to learn was just that mm -hmm. the problem lied in here. The problem wasn't the industry mm -hmm. or anything else. And then COVID happens. COVID, I hate to say this because it decimated so many businesses and so many lives. It was a blessing for me and my family. Because mm -hmm. I was able to push pause, which is something I have trouble doing. I am somebody, if you give me 24 hours a day to work, I will work 26 of those hours. Yeah. I am constantly <laughs> pushing myself. I noticed because we sent you an email to book you on this show. And you're like, cool, I'll be in Nashville in three days. I'll come right from the yeah, airport. Yeah, well, it's like I, I flew into Nashville for three days to write eight songs. I'm the guy who, like, if I'm going to be somewhere, I'm going to be working. My time yeah. is valuable. And I still have this mindset. I've gotten better at it since the pandemic. No matter where I am in my career, I'm afraid that if I take my foot off the gas for a second, I go back to the starting point. Mm. And I had to learn that I can coast for a little bit and not lose anything. It's not about people lapping me or people going faster. I'm not going to lose anything by taking my foot off the gas and, and enjoying the race so far. So the pandemic forced me to take my foot off the gas. It said, listen, mm -hmm. you know those 200 or 250 shows you're used to playing every year? Those don't exist anymore. You literally cannot do this anymore. And when the pandemic started, my daughter was one. And so I got to really jump into being a full-time dad. Like my wife doesn't work. My wife hasn't worked since my daughter was born. So I got to be a co-parent in the truest sense of co-parent. Before I was a co-parent, but it was more of when I'm home, I'm 100% there. When I'm on the road, I'll do what I can. But yeah. for two years, I got to be the person that woke her up, the person that got to color every morning, the person that watched everything on Disney+, Plus, the person that cooked <laughs> breakfast, the person yeah. that cooked lunch, the person that cooked dinner. And then when the world opened back up, that was still what I wanted. I still mm -hmm. want to be dad every day. And so I called the boys and told them very clearly, we're never playing more than 100 shows a year again. Like, I refuse to give this up. And I'm very fortunate because my daughter and my wife get to come on the road with me a lot. Our bus is set up to where the whole back lounge is kind of like a king suite. And so we mm -hmm. all stay back there. We sleep back there. We have our own bathroom back there. And then the boys are in the, the bunk area. And then there's a lounge with a bathroom up front. And so we kind of get to have family time when I'm on the road. And then when we park every morning at 7 or 8 o'clock and they're still sleeping, we can get off the bus and go to the aquarium, go to the zoo, go to the children's museum and spend all day mm -hmm. doing super cool stuff. So it was about not looking at my life as two different things, road guy and dad guy. It was finding ways to make sure that that line was never blurred again. Like, why can't I be dad guy on the road? I'm at a position where I can. Why am I not doing this? And so the pandemic was huge. It shifted my priorities. And I think it did it with a lot of people. I, yeah, I like definitely. to think that before the pandemic, that if my daughter had a dance recital, that I wouldn't play a show. No matter how big of a show it was, I like to think that pre-pandemic me would be like, 
no, I've already committed to my daughter. As much as I would love to open up the Enormo Dome for my favorite band, my daughter comes first. But I don't think I think I would have chose the career. I think I would have made an excuse in my head to justify missing something that I thought was lesser than my thing. But post pandemic, mm-hmm. there's not a fucking chance I'm missing that dance recital. Like you could offer me the world for it, and I'm not missing it. Like I book my mm-hmm. entire tours now around birthdays, holidays, school plays, recitals. You know, that's the most important thing for me because I look at it. Being a good dad is the only thing I haven't fucked up yet. I have fucked up every relationship I've ever had. I fucked up every friendship. I was a bad husband. I was a bad partner. I was a bad friend. I was a bad boss. I was a bad kid. I was a bad son. I was a bad everything. But the one thing I've never fucked up is being a bad dad. My kid thinks I'm a superhero. My kid thinks that I can literally move (laughs) mountains. Anything she wants, I can make it happen. Anything you want to see, dad can take you there. I never Mm -hmm. want her to look at me and be like, he chose something over me. And that's the one thing Mm -hmm. I still have a very tangible grasp on. And I told my wife, I'm like, you know, I'll spend the rest of my life making stuff up to you and my friends and my parents. But like, I never have to make anything up to her. That's the priority. And so being a super dad is kind of where I'm at now. Like, yeah, I play shows and she thinks it's cool as shit what I do. Like, they had career day at her school and everybody else was like, my dad's an accountant. My dad's a firefighter. And she was like, my dad's a rock and roller. And I've never been more proud yeah. of my kids. Yeah. She's like, my dad's a rock and roller. And she's like, what do you mean? It's like him and his rock friends travel around the world and play music for people. She doesn't call them my yeah. band. She calls them my rock friends. <laughs> I think that's the greatest thing. And like for a long time, she didn't know what musician was. So for the longest time, when people ask her, what does your dad do? She told them, and this is the greatest thing that has ever, if I ever have a LinkedIn page, this is what I do for a living. She said, my dad travels the world and makes people happy. And I was like, That's beautiful. I was like, cool. I was like, you don't have to call me a musician. You can just tell people that. Yep. That sounds way cooler than anything <laughs> I could ever say. And so priority shifted to that. And so any day where I'm stressed out or orders are piling up or a tour is not getting booked fast enough or we're having snags, I FaceTime her. And I focus on that. I say, what can I control today? And I can control being somebody that makes her laugh. Somebody that tells her a funny joke or reads her a story at night. And it it sends me back to center. One thing that's resonated in my head while you've been talking is your ability to question your own self-identity. Yeah. Take inventory of it and be like, is this serving me? Is this right? And it's something that I see with a lot of artists where there is identity existence where it's like, I'm an artist. I need to drink 18 tequilas and smoke four doobies to be able to create. That's what keeps me creative. Or I need to work all the time. Otherwise I'm not creative. So in this massive change that you've gone through with yourself over, let's just call it the last like five years, has that affected your creative process? Has it changed it? Has it made it better? Has it made it worse? It's, It's made me limit my creative process, but it's highly focused time. So instead of being the drunk guy that sat around his couch waiting for the muse to strike and I'd spend eight hours just getting fucked up and trying to write, I write for about two hours every morning. I wake up, I have a cup of coffee, I sit at my desk, and I write. Sometimes it's fruitful, sometimes it's not. But at the end of that two hours, I get up. I walk away from it. Mm -hmm. And I have found that my life is far more fruitful. Because instead of spending the whole day trying to catch that muse, I know that that two hours I have every morning, sitting down, doing my morning pages, is you have two hours to dedicate to this, man. There's no checking Instagram. There's no creating distraction. 
There's no checking my email. That can all wait till after the two hours. I have two hours to try to open that floodgate and see if I can reach in and grab anything. And some mornings I'll have three song ideas. Like I'll have three songs that I've either started or have lines for or a melody or chorus or a voice memo. And at the end of that two hours, if I'm not riding that lightning, like hardcore, like writing lines, I put it on pause. I leave the door open during this process because I want my daughter to be able to see it. I don't want her to think it's a magic trick dad does. I want her to see the time that goes in to creating these things. But my wife knows that if the door's shut, dad's in his sweet spot. Dad's hitting dingers. Yeah. And when that door opens back up, I'm done. But it might be 20 minutes over my allotted two hours. But like if I'm zoning, like I'm at a point in this craft where I know if it's fruitful. It used to be I had no idea when the muse was going to open up and let me have something. But now it's almost mm-hmm. like I'm a meteorologist. Like I see the muse coming. I see the signs. So I just start setting buckets out. And it used to be I'm trying to catch rain in my hands. I'm trying to pull my shirt up. Now, if I see it coming, there's buckets out. There's a voice recorder right here. I've already got a blank page up on the screen. I'm like, come on. I know this feeling. And then something hits, and you immediately are capturing it, which I think makes that two hours just as fruitful as the old six hours, having no idea when I was going to be able to pluck something out of the ether. You know, I'm not a spiritual person anymore. I'm not a religious person anymore, but I'm very, the closest I get to spiritual is when it comes to songwriting. That's the closest I've ever felt to divinity. That's the closest I've ever felt of there is something bigger than me here that is letting me have a gift that I get to call my own in this realm, but it is not mine. Writing songs is that way for me. I feel like when you're in it, there's this thing that opens up that lets me reach into somewhere that I'm not supposed to be, somewhere that is holy. And I get to pull stuff out and sing it to people as my own. And occasionally I can pull one or two things out. And sometimes the floodgates open and that damn thing stays open for a whole morning. And I get to just sit up there and shop. But at the end of the day, it's like songs aren't uh, like nobody's sitting there writing songs. They are gifts from something that's bigger than us. And I I hate to get super fucking heady about it. But when I talk about songwriting, it's the closest to like a spiritual experience I've ever. And I grew up in the church. I watch people get bit with the spirit immediately and like the closest i've ever felt to that is when you're writing a song and not even finishing a song but when you're in that middle it's like every pitch is a strike you know that you're not fucking up you're like oh i need a word to rhyme with this and the next thing that comes you're like holy shit that's incredible and then you look at it at the end of the day and you're like there's no way that my dumb redneck yeah, ass yeah i'm not responsible i couldn't for I, that. i'm not responsible <laughs> for that you write these songs that people come up to you and you're like it changed my life I got sober because of you. My husband got sober because of you. Our family was saved because of a song you wrote. I was like, that shit ain't on me. I was like, I don't have that kind of power. Mm-hmm. I was just lucky to be the conduit for it. I was the person that kind yeah. of grabbed that energy, grabbed a pen, and I was the middleman. That's all I yep. am. I'm mm-hmm. the middleman. But the between this really big thing, I don't want to get too, like, I'm not a prophet or anything, but it's one of those things where I feel like, The longer we do this in our craft, the better we get at knowing it's coming, knowing how to handle that electricity and how to put it on the page. And so I find that by limiting my creative time, focusing that creative time to you only have this time of the day, the rest of your day is going to be spent being a dad, being a husband, being a provider, being the guy that mows the grass. You got two hours today, man. Every day you got those two hours. I've learned that I don't squander any of that time during those two hours. Instead Mm -hmm. of having just open days where I'm just like, if it comes, it comes. And some people are like, does it feel like work? And I'm like, 
it should kind of sometimes like I come into an office, a separate room that I have dedicated for this. I sit down, I punch my time clock. It's just, I got a really cool fucking job. At the end of the day, it's, it's my job to create. It's my job to make art, but it's a cool fucking job. But in my opinion, at this age, at this point in my life, it has to be a job. It has to be something that I can go in, put the time in and walk away from to go to the bigger job. To go to the other job, which yeah. is being present, which is being somebody that's not constantly checking his phone or writing down stuff. It's somebody who can go in there and just put on my princess tiara and sit down for some tea with a bunch of squishmallows <laughs> yeah. and fucking enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question in that so many of your songs are dealing with really heavy topics, whether it's deeply personal stuff of the loss of your mother or a friend or kind of more political landscape, the state of our country, you're doing a lot of emotional heavy lifting in your writing. Do you ever have times where you are avoidant of that? I have ulterior motives in asking this because the last few years of our life is kind of the heaviest time I've ever dealt with in my life of becoming parents, giving birth for the first time. And when I was pregnant, my mom suffered a massive stroke. And two years later, she's still not recovered from it. It's dramatically changed her life. And I've felt like I know the songs that I need to write are really emotionally heavy. And I'm not ready to do that work because I'm still kind of in survival mode. So I've been avoiding the creative work for so long. And I was listening to your song so much this last week and just like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that easy for you to go in there? Or do you ever feel like, oh, I can't do this right now? Or, you know, need to do other like care for yourself to be able to do that or like recover from that work? So, pre sobriety, all of my writing was about the version of me that I thought people cared about, which was the rock and roller, the drinker, chasing skirts and, you know, living up the rock life. You know, I was writing songs about mm-hmm. being in bars every night and one night stands and drugs and dying before I'm 40. With sobriety, I realized that I was writing as a character. Don't get me wrong. There's still plenty of songs that came before sobriety that I'm very proud of, that I still play every night mm-hmm. because it was a time and place and it was still me. But after sobriety, the clarity that comes with sobriety, being able to look in the mirror and see a horrible person and then confront that horrible person. That's what sobriety did for me. It used to be, I would look in the mirror and see things about myself on the inside that I hated. And then I would drink, I would use, I would go sleep with somebody to make myself feel better for a second to pretend that I didn't see that horrible thing in the mirror. But with sobriety, I was able to look in the mirror and say, instead of writing about what people want to hear, I'm going to write about exactly what I see. I don't care how ugly it is. I don't care how fucked up it is. I don't care if it kills everybody's preconceived notion about who I am as a person. I want to write honest. And I want to write something that makes me feel uncomfortable. I want to write something that almost feels like I shouldn't be sharing it. I like to tiptoe that line of like too much information. I like Mm -hmm. to tiptoe that line of like, I want you to listen to this song and I want you to feel uncomfortable. But not like a bad way. I want you to feel uncomfortable. Like, holy shit. Like, should we be hearing this? Was mm-hmm. this supposed to be on the record? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I wanted it to feel like a diary entry. So I started writing about the stuff that really fucked with me. The stuff that I was afraid to write about. The stuff that 
You know, nobody wants to write about how weak you are, and that's why you needed to get sober. That's why you were drinking so much is because you hated yourself as a person and you were a weak human being. You didn't have control over your desires and your actions. That's not rock and roll, man. Keith Richards doesn't write about that, bro. Mm -hmm. But I found this peace that comes with is this freedom that comes with being brutally honest with yourself. And there's something that people latch onto when they see somebody else be that brutally honest with themselves. They see pieces of themselves in that brutal honesty. You have put in words to something they have looked in the mirror and seen and not know how to conquer it, not know how to put words to it, not know how to overcome it. And all of a sudden, not only has somebody put words to it, it lets them know that they're not the only person feeling insecure. They're not the only person that lost somebody they cared about and don't know how to talk about it. They're not the only person that has been riding this addiction for 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Somebody else wrote it, fixed it, and now they're talking about it. If that guy can do it, so can I. So once I started seeing a direct correlation between how honest I was willing to be and how much more it affected somebody, than a song about getting drunk or a one night stand having people come up to me instead of being like, Hey man, let me buy you a shot. That song about getting fucked up was great. Somebody walking up and being like, I need to hug you. And this happens on a nightly basis. Somebody comes up and hugs you and says, because of you, my husband got sober and it saved our family. Like, ugh. if you need any more encouragement to look yourself in the face and keep fighting those demons, then people coming up to you and telling you, that you, a stranger, 1,500, 2,000 miles away from them, in three minutes, changed the trajectory of their family. You're in it for the wrong reasons. So once I started getting that, I knew they were good songs. And then I'd play them for the band, and then the band would be like, whoa, that made me feel something. I'm like, I did my job. You felt something, whether it was uncomfortable or acceptance or just not being fucking alone for three minutes. Once I started seeing that, that confidence built and it built to the point where when 2020 happened and a lot of my world started falling apart, my mother died, my grandmother died, miscarriages, three fentanyl overdoses from three friends of mine. I wasn't afraid to write about that stuff. I wasn't pushing it to the back of my closet. I was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm ready for this, but head on, let's fucking take it. And -hmm. writing these really honest songs. And you're not looking for somebody to feel sorry for you. You're not looking for somebody to pat you on the back and say it's okay. You're looking for somebody to say, I'm there. Like, I'm going through that too, man. Like, I lost my mom Mm -hmm. here. I lost my mom 10 years ago, and it still feels this way. You know, my mom's sick, and it scares the shit out of me that this song's going to be way too real in six months. And going back to that idea of building community, there is no better way to build community than through our trauma. There's a reason that Alcoholics Anonymous meet with other alcoholics. There's a a reason that drug addicts meet with other drug addicts. There's a reason that if you lost your kid in a war, they have meetings for parents that have lost kids in action, talking about these fucked up things that all of us have to go through, bond us more than any anything else. You want to talk about sense of community, start writing songs about shit that affects us all throughout our life. I still got 20-year-old kids who come up to me like, man, I still like your early stuff about getting fucked up, man. I was like... Come up to me in 10 years, have a kid, (laughs) get married, Mm -hmm. wait till one of your parents die. Mm -hmm. I was like, then this record will be waiting for you. This record might resonate with you more. Cause I remember at 20, I I couldn't have wrote a song about my mom at 20, 25, 30. I couldn't have written a song about losing somebody 
at that point. It just, these things happened at a time in my career where I possessed the tools to do so. I highly encourage you, whenever you're ready to do so, I highly encourage you writing about that stuff because there is a peace that comes with being able to put into words those massive feelings. The closest I've ever felt to it was like going to therapy and talking to somebody about it and leaving with like this burden off your shoulders. Putting it into words is one thing, but then once you put that into words and you put it out into the world, there's this like really freeing thing about it. And mm-hmm. and I always tell my family, like at family reunions, and I told my wife when I met her, I was like, anything that ever happens in our relationship is fair game for writing. <laughs> yeah. Any emotion that I've ever experienced yeah. like is fair <laughs> game. I was like, even if it's a tiny squabble that gets resolved at night, if it sparks a fucking song... I'm sorry, but there's going to be a fight about who left the milk out for the rest of our life. And that's what we're getting into. And so like my family has to know that like when my mom died, I don't know if my dad was ready to confront that as a person. But then when he had to listen to my record, he was immediately forced to confront a lot of that stuff, especially when I'm Mm -hmm. writing songs from his perspective. Like I wrote a song on this record about like how my dad has to wake up every morning to an empty space that wasn't empty for 40 plus years. Because my dad told me, he's like, there's moments I wake up And I still talk to her and she's not there. And I know she's not there, but I still have these, he's like, am I crazy? I'm like, no, putting that in a song, dad. And then you write this song and it doesn't sound crazy. It shows us that that kind of love after nearly a half a century doesn't get cut off as soon as the mortal version of that person's gone. Like you're still going to wake up and go through those motions of how'd you sleep? You want any eggs? That kind of stuff. Like, that's beautiful to me. That's not crazy or that's not a negative thing. That's beautiful to me. And I want to write about that kind of stuff. And I want to write about that kind of stuff that makes people feel stuff. And some people enjoy that. Some people don't. Like, when I started getting political, because before sobriety, I wasn't willing to talk about that. Because there was a part of me that was like, if I get political, then I'm going to alienate half of my fan base. And I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. But then when I had a daughter, that was when I started writing about what people call political stuff, the world around mm-hmm. us, the environment we're surrounded by. Right. And people ask why I started getting so political. And I told them that I had a daughter. And I never want my daughter to ever come up to me and say, Dad, when this thing happened, you had a platform. Why didn't you say anything? Why did you just keep singing about other stuff? Why didn't you talk about this massive thing that happened in history? I never want my daughter... To look at me like a coward and think that I chose a couple hundred extra Instagram followers over being honest. I never want her to look at me that I chose double attendance at a show in conservative red states over speaking out against what I saw happening. And I learned that making that decision, a lot of people walked away from our band. A lot of our fans, quotation marks for those not watching. There was two people that took their place at the table. Two people that have been looking for a redneck voice that talks about stuff that they can't talk about with their family. You know, the, the Southern progressives, all of a sudden there's a guy that sounds like them talking about the stuff that matters to them. And it's funny cause I only have probably three songs that even get remotely political, but those three songs were enough to run a shit ton of rednecks off. We call that <laughs> the trash taking itself out. And it's one of those things where I wasn't willing to be quiet about stuff just so those people could pay 20 bucks, 30 bucks every time I come to town. And we learned a very valuable lesson. There's a direct correlation between the people that yell, shut up and sing and the same people that get too drunk and start fights at shows or get too drunk and Mm. yell at you on stage thinking, I pay $20, I can do whatever I want to in here. There's a direct (laughs) correlation between the people that get on Twitter and say, you're not allowed to have your opinion, singer, songwriter. 
I want you to be right. honest about every other bad thing in your life, but I don't need you to be honest about the thing I disagree with you on. There's a direct correlation between those and the people that show up and ruin it for everybody else. Who would have thought? So by being open and honest, we have cultivated this really accepting crowd of left and right thinking people because it's adults that understand I may not agree with everything this guy says, but God damn it, I love how he says it. I love how he puts it. Yeah, and also we can have respectful discourse. Yeah, there's a difference between an argument and a discussion. An argument is just a discussion without respect. Discussions have respect for the other person you're talking to. There's a reason I can go home and talk to my father about politics, who is diametrically opposed to everything I believe in, and I can still hug it out and say, I love you, Dad. I don't understand why the fuck you still think that, why you keep voting against your own self-interest every fucking year for the last 40 (laughs) years, but I love you. And we can walk away and still talk. People have arguments, and there's no respect in arguments. Because everybody's on the, the internet and they can say whatever they want to and there's no direct repercussions. Mm-hmm. There's this thing on the internet where I have to deal with people like on Twitter and Instagram who they say things on the internet that they would never once say to your face at the merch table. I encourage people, I'm like, my schedule is posted three to four months in advance. If you've got something you would like to say to me, please come to a show. If you don't feel like giving money to me to come to a show to say it to my face, I'll happily put you on the guest list. I'll leave you tickets at will call. Come talk to me face to face because one... You're not going to say that to somebody's face. And probably we're going to talk about the things we have in common. We're going to find this really great middle ground of, holy shit, we agree with each other on like 90% of things. Like, you like the same football team I like. We both like Dale Earnhardt. You like fried chicken from that place too? Holy shit. There's these certain things we disagree on, and it's divided our country to a point where people feel like they can't listen to music of someone that disagrees with them. And so I try to break that down. And don't get me wrong. There's people on Twitter, you're not going to change their mind and... Those are the people that are fun to just humiliate on a massive scale. But I've found me and my crowd have gotten closer talking about these things. Because I've got people who come up and say, man, I don't agree with like 99% of the things you think about politically, but like that song about your mom, like saved my life. Or that song about sobriety saved my Mm -hmm. life. Or that song. Because like we're all going through something. Every Mm -hmm. human being is going through some shit. Whether or not they talk about it or not, whether or not they post it on the Facebook We're all going through something. We're all looking for ways to make it easier. And I feel like writing songs is a way to connect with people and give them an easier way of dealing with their problems. And so our fan base has gotten exponentially better once I started getting uncomfortably honest with with them. Yeah, and you're leading the tone at your shows and then also like among the people who are following you on your platform, on your feed, whatever there is, you're in a leadership role. Yeah, I think it's important because you look up and I think there's a little over like 200,000 kids collectively on our social media network. There's a power that comes to that. There's also a responsibility that comes with that of being able to just write down something and it immediately gets just shot to 200,000 people. That's a, you get to very clearly state what you're willing to put up with and what you're not willing to put up with. And you're able to show people the exit door if they're not willing to respect that decision. Mm -hmm. And that's been the greatest thing for us. Just the crowd that shows up at the shows is a hundred times better. Like we don't have fights. We don't have people getting too drunk and getting kicked out of shows, but we're a loud rock and roll party. Our show is very much about like, Cut loose, have fun, it's Friday, Like, have a good time. But we're going to feel some things, too. We're going to talk about some shit that makes us all very uncomfortable. Because every night I talk about sobriety, I talk about suicide, I talk about depression. But I also talk about, you know, the really fun anthems. And so our shows have become this really great, like, grown-up therapy session. And 
I'm kind of into that. If people come up to me, it's like, man, you made me feel something I didn't want to feel. And I was like, I did my job and you got your money's worth because a therapist costs way more than $25 at the door. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, it, it's fun because it, it reminds you that you're on the right track in your writing. Next time you sit down and you tiptoe that line of, holy shit, am I sharing too much? You're reminded of, okay, every time you've been here before, you've navigated it properly. Just step yeah. a little bit closer to the edge and see if it feels comfortable. My wife is the first person that hears every song. And she is brutally honest with me. Like, my wife does not like my music. I met my wife at a show. She was on a date with another guy. And she was like the loud drunk girl talking. And so, like, I had to stop the show. And I was like, ma'am, you're fucking this up for everybody. I was like, I will give you t- wow. I was like, I'll give you 20 bucks out of my pocket. Like, I will literally pay you to leave right now. And <laughs> after the show, like, she came up and apologized. And we started talking. And then, like, two days later, she was in Atlanta to come see another show, but she's not like a fan. So like, she feels very comfortable letting me know when something sounds niche or sounds cliche or sounds bad or mm-hmm. isn't suitable for my voice or feels a little too much. Like that's more of us than I'm willing to share with everybody else. If yeah. you could please find a different way to say that. Mm-hmm. But the only song I've ever asked her permission to write was, Chickamacomico, which is a song about a miscarriage we had six years ago. That was the only song where I came to her before I even started writing and said, I'm about to try to put into words something. I'm not going to write from your point of view because I'll never understand what you went through physically, but I'm going to write about it from like a guy's point of view, what I went through emotionally. Is that okay with you? And she said, I just want to hear it. So the first line I played for her was, I swear I'm going to lose my mind if I have to hear about God's plan one more goddamn time. And she was like, as long as everything else is like that, then yes. I played her the song and she's like, that's fucking good. I don't hear that a lot from my wife. So I was like, this, this, I was like, this is going to wreck people in a really good way. And so it was yeah. the name of the record. It was the opener for the record. It was a song that I probably got a hundred messages the first day I posted it on Instagram. Strangers sharing some of the most intimate details of the worst day of their life. Yeah. And being like, there's finally a song that encapsulates this. There's a finally a song Mm -hmm. that I can play for somebody and let them know what I went through. And when you start getting Mm -hmm. those kind of messages, you feel like you have tapped into your superpower. Like, holy shit, I can talk about really fucked up things in a way that make people feel a little less fucked up. And I'm not going back and writing a song about going to the bar ever again. Like, Yeah, I think of really vulnerable songwriting. I sometimes struggle with, as a performer, the egocentricity of stuff, of seeking attention and making everything about you and am I sharing because I want to be talking about myself all the time. And I've been thinking, no, actually, the more vulnerable you are and the more you share through your work, it's an invitation for others to feel allowed to share. And in the last couple of years of our lives, as I've, when I play shows now, I share about what's been going on in my personal life the last few years and my mom and all of the trauma and tragedy that we've had and the stories that I get in return And the emotions that I receive in return, anytime I get uncomfortable and think, am I like trauma dumping on stage? Is this not appropriate? Every time I'm like, oh, no, this actually isn't about me. I'm not dumping my feelings on people. I'm giving an invitation and telling people it's okay to be vulnerable. And every time I come back to it, the point of life is to connect with other human beings and to share our experiences. I think everybody that starts writing songs, there is a touch of ego involved. Because songwriters have to walk this really weird tightrope of ego and vulnerability. Like, you have to be vulnerable enough and introverted enough 
to be able to confront these feelings. But you also have to have an ego that tells you like your voice matters, like your version of this story matters enough to say it out loud or to put it on a record. So there's always this ego, but I've found that most of my favorite writers, all the songs started off. Here's a song about a personal experience of mine. And then you run out of those after like two or three records. Nobody has lived that cool of a fucking life to where you need 45 songs about yourself. (laughs) And then you get to the point where you have to start writing about stories you've heard or this observation you made. And I I love that about like the voice apps and the note app is like, if I'm sitting at a diner eating and like dropping in on somebody else's conversation, they might say something that completely takes me down a rabbit hole. Probably the last four or five records, other people's experiences have informed my songwriting so much, but those first two or three records were very much like, here's something stupid I did when I was 18 and here's 19, here's 20, 21. But then you get to the point where you've told all the cool stories and cool fabrications of half-truths. And then you have to start like really becoming a writer. Record three or four is where we all become like real writers. Narrative has to come into play at some point. Fictional narrative has to come into play at some point. And I think once you learn that that is a power, not something that holds you back, like having to make up a story that's not 100% true is not a detriment. That is a power because it allows you to go in any direction you need it to. I feel like the best writers learn how to mix ego and vulnerability because you still have to be proud enough of the songs to be like, I'm going to sing this the rest of my life. It's that good. But also vulnerable enough to be like, I've got to go to a pretty fucked up place to get this song. And learning how to balance those two. Yeah. Keep those two in check, because too much of one or too much of the other, you're not going to be able to get anything. Yeah, too many eyes in a song have taken me out of it. Like, I did this, and I did that. It's like, oh, fuck. I get it, man. You're the guy. (laughs) But, like, there's also, the ego's not there, but there's also not enough depth to it. They've completely not went deep enough, and it just comes off as like, ugh, I get it, like... You're sad, but like, how sad are you? Or you're happy. Like, how happy are you? Like, I need you to dig deeper into that because if you're not vulnerable enough, it's just going to come across as milk toast. You know, it's it's just, okay. Like, I've heard this song a lot. Like, it just sounds like a Lumineers record. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, like, like I'm not, not knocking the Lumineers, but it's like some of the stuff is just like throwing a dart and trying to hit the biggest demographic. Right. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, it's it, it's been diluted down to something that is... It's tap water. Everybody's going to taste it. Be like, ah, it's it's water. Cool. It's, it serves its purpose. But like, I like to write stuff for a very small group of people that really, truly fucking love songs and love taking yeah. that deep dive. I think there's enough room at the table for everybody. There's enough room at the table for, you know, our pop folk bands and hand clapping hay bands and... The people mm-hmm. that write really dark, fucking twisted shit. 100%. <laughs> well, we know your daughter's coming home, so we'll start to wrap Heck this yeah. up. We appreciate you spending the morning for with sure. us. sure. Thanks for having yeah. a platform to talk about this kind of stuff. Absolutely. There's so much talk about community on this podcast. So if somebody has never heard of American Aquarium or never heard of you and likes what they hear, where do you like to send people to connect? Wherever you find music. AmericanAquarium.com is our website. So I, I always tell people to stream it. Go find Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, whatever you use to listen, listen it. And then if anything moves you, buy it. I always encourage people to buy it directly from me. Please don't buy it from 
any third party because they're just you're not going to get a handwritten note from the guy that wrote all the fucking songs. I can get it there the same amount of time as Jeff Bezos can. If you don't want to buy directly from me, go to your independent local record store. All of our stuff is distributed, so you can pick it up, and if they don't have it, they can order it, and you can be supporting another really great small business. We're on all of the social media that somebody my age should be on. Are you on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. Okay. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> I don't have, what's the other one where you could send pictures to each other and they erase? Oh, Snapchat? Not, is that still a I don't thing? know. Nobody wants to see a near 40-year-old dude like me trying to do dance trends. So, you know, I don't have the jawline for country music, so nobody needs to see my fucking face that much. I'm still trying to figure out reels on Instagram. I, I refuse to play the game, but then, like, you realize that, like, holy shit, that got, like, 30,000 more people seeing it than me making, like, an actual thought-out emotional post i know yeah it's yeah. one of those things where the game doesn't care if you play it or not yeah it's, you know the game is gonna go on it's icky so. you know we all have friends that play the game and every day is a new reel or a new trend mm-hmm. or a new thing and you know i'm just gonna keep posting just my tour dates and here's a new shirt to sell and here's a cute thing my fucking kid did i've always went after that the natural pretty organic way to mm-hmm. to share with your friends until TikTok proves more valuable to me, I think Instagram's the most like cutting edge thing I, I think I'm doing. And Twitter's where, <laughs> Twitter's where I have the most fun because it's like a cesspool. But I feel like if you're even remotely intellectual and you can formulate some really big thoughts into 140 characters, you can kind of be a king of Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like, there's a lot of people that are just like, man, fuck you. And I'm like, oh, I've got a really neat way to say that that takes up all the yeah. characters. And I still had room for three lightning emojis at the end of it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, Twitter's, a, Twitter's where I have the most fun, I think. So anybody who wants to find me on the internet could find me. Yeah, support local music. That's the biggest yeah. encouragement. Stream the shit out of all your major label friends. But if your friends are on a small label or they own their own label, always try to buy physical copies of the product. Yeah. I always say buy the product to build your collection and then stream it a ton. Streaming is super convenient. <laughs> you can listen to anything, anywhere, anytime. And I your mean, numbers, unfortunately, in the game, your numbers matter to certain yeah, people it, for things. We offer all of our CDs for $5 on our website. Wow. Um, vinyl is still $25, $30 a piece, depending on if it's mm-hmm. a single or a double record or if it's colored or whatever. But CDs are five bucks a piece because I don't want anybody to have an excuse not to own a physical medium of the record. So if mm-hmm. like even if you're a streamer and you don't have room for vinyl, buy a five dollar CD, give it to a friend, and rest easy knowing that you bought a physical copy of something from the artist and stream the shit out of it. I tell people I'm like if you buy yeah. a vinyl or if you buy the digital download or buy a CD. That's the rest of your life, guilt-free. You get to stream it knowing that you bought a physical copy from the artist and that he will never wish any kind of karmic retribution on you. So people are like, I don't want to buy a CD. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm like, it's five bucks. I'm like, you can spend $5 on a record that changed your life. Even if it's just a tangible reminder of the record you love and you use it as a coaster or it sits in your glove box for the rest of your life, know that you bought a physical copy of the record. I think that's extremely important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being so open and honest. Heck yeah. Thank you guys. I, I feel like we could talk for another hour. Thank you guys. Thanks for letting me be one of the inaugural guests. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Other 22 Hours podcast. You can find more info on this episode, including links to things that we talked about by going to theother22hours.com and clicking on episodes. We want this show to be a resource for our community, from our community. So we'd love to hear from you about what works and what doesn't. Please let us know by sending an email to info at the other 22 hours.com. 
and we'll see you back here next week for another episode.